Hi. Hi. <laughs> okay. This is Dara, and welcome to the third episode of the Baker Street Irregulars. I know that we promised a, a different topic, but we decided after the elementary finale that we really, really needed to do an entire podcast about that episode and how much we had feelings over it and how much we wanted to deconstruct it. Um, so anyway, welcome to The Woman King, which is our deconstruction of both Watson and Irene, or Moriarty, as whichever name you prefer for her. And I think it's quite fitting that both of these characters were the subjects of our first two podcasts. So this is kind of tying up some loose ends here. Yeah, absolutely. And just like the finale was so amazing. So a lot of times you might just hear us going, oh my God, feelings, <laughs> because that's basically how... I think most of the elementary fandom was after that finale. But, you know, talk about, whoa, totally blowing us out of the water in terms of just doing the exact opposite of what it seemed like they were going to do. You know, I'm just I'm just so impressed with the way these writers are willing to take those kinds of risks. It's really refreshing to see on TV. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, no, it was really amazing because... Honestly, the funny thing is, I was a little bit disheartened before, and I was telling you about it, Tasha, just like, I just felt that the lead up, the, the episodes leading up, because, you know, we'd known that the last four episodes or so were supposed to be about Moriarty and like the big finishing arc. And I was just not really okay with the pacing. It just seemed to be really off to me, the way that was being handled. Then it's like, oh, that's why. I mean, honestly, I think that it tied everything together. I think if you look at the last several episodes as a whole, it's just, it's very well paced and well written and whatnot. It's just uh, not what I expected, to say the least. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And when I so, said I hoped Irene wasn't fridged and that she was alive, I had no idea that this was how, they, this was where they were going to take it. And I remember in our first podcast, I was lamenting the fact that Irene's already dead in elementary and you, Dara, actually talked about how you don't think she's dead. Yeah, no, I was never, ever, like, I just, I don't know. I mean, like, it's not even that I had such amazing faith or anything in the writers. I just seemed like such a, it just did not seem to fit at all. I thought that even if they used the character only for her emotional impact on Holmes, it would make no sense to have such an iconic character be fridged off screen of all places. Absolutely. Um, and before the time, it just made no sense to me. Like, I just thought just even to have a continuing effect on Holmes, they were going to have to bring her back because, I mean, the whole thing was how he was healing and moving on. And it's like, okay, usually you fridge a character to create feelings and conflict for the male character. If she's already fridged off screen, how do you create those feelings now that he's healing? Well, you bring her back. You unfridge her. Yep. And of course... What's great is that I I'm saying all this, that even if the writers had used Irene only for her possible effect on Holmes, well, I think what's great about this episode is how it just takes so many tropes of television and turns them on its head mm -hmm. and just what the viewer expects Irene's arc to be and purpose, I think, of her suffering and her character and all of it. It's just really turned on its head in so many ways. Yeah. So um, anyway, we just wanted to like do a quick chronological overview of the episode, and then we'll like go and have feelings about it. So of course, uh, penultimate episode ends with Watson and Holmes stumbling into this hideout of Moriarty's, and they find Irene, and Sherlock breaks down, and oh my god, what an emotional scene. Oh my god, I have seen so many gift sets of his expressions during that scene, and it just kind of hits me every time. I mean, he... Johnny Lee Miller, I mean, we can talk a lot about his interpretation of Holmes and where it hits the mark and where it misses, but as far as displaying or conveying that emotional vulnerability combined with the, the social awkwardness that we associate with Sherlock Holmes, or at least with modern, modern interpretations of Sherlock Holmes, he just hit it out of the park. I mean, it was so authentic and so vulnerable. vulnerable. And yeah, I was just so impressed with him in that scene. Oh gosh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. 
and just really raw and uncomfortable to watch yeah. in, in some respects. Yeah. So yeah. that was really quite amazing. And of course, then I think that shortly thereafter, when you're having the flashback to how they meet, oh my God, I love that. I love their entire meeting in her apartment and just their rapport and the way they sort of play off each other. Also, the way she greets him, Tasha, oh, you're beautiful. It's like, that's never how you greet. Like, it's just, that's that's often how you would expect the damsel to be introduced, but not yeah. him. And yeah. he's so uncomfortable and sort of like thrown off <laughs> yeah. by the way she just kind of assesses him and goes, oh, you're beautiful. <laughs> yes, that was that was really great. And, you know, when you think about how later she calls him a work of art, you know, it's just kind of a great connection that, that she always yeah. she always saw him as this fun, beautiful plaything. Yeah, which of course is, you know, terrible and creepy in all its ways, but sort of turning it on its head because I think that it's not that male characters aren't sexualized, but it's less as part of the female gaze and less as an object of beauty for the female gaze or even for the queer male gaze. It's it's often just more like when male characters sexualized, it's an expression of power and virility or whatever, you know? Yep. That's how they're brought forth on the screen. And here it's just, I just kind of love the fact that he is the object of her admiration in a very different way than we often see male characters admired. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm explaining that well at all, sorry. But no, I, I just thought it was different and mm-hmm. I liked that. And just, yeah, the, just the way they play off each other is fantastic and and then of course for like you have the big reveal it's just kind of really startling and upsetting to go from the flashback irene to irene in the hospital Mm -hmm. yeah she's Um, you know we're obviously very traumatized and you know you're feeling oh she's going through ptsd and you know you kind of see how broken holmes is and of course he is basically, you know, at this point embodying the narrative trope perfectly and basically centering her experience and her pain and her trauma around him. You know, oh, it's my fault that this happened to her. It's my fault that she, that Moriarty is messing with her. Me, me, me. You know, the very man pain. Yeah, um, very much so. so. Yeah. So, and then, of course, things start to unravel and, and go in a completely different direction. Yeah. And the thing is, there's just a lot of interesting things about, like, Watson and Holmes um, interacting there because of the way, you know, he's just so thrown off and how I think we've seen this entire season, like, how he's becoming more and more comfortable in his, like, explicit emotional dependence on in, on Watson and the yeah. way he speaks to her. And so I just really love also, of course, this theme is echoed in many ways throughout the episode, but when he's just kind of lost in the hospital outside Irene's room and just sort of going, oh my god, well, Moriarty is clearly smarter than I am, and that how he steps yeah. away from the case, and the incredible gesture of trust it is when he says that when they're both trying to figure out how they're going to figure do, deal with this, and, you know, they decide that they're going to figure it out as they go along, and that Joan is the, going to be the one working on the case, because he's one, emotionally compromised, and two, caring for Irene. Yeah. Um, and that's such a gesture of trust, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I just, oh my gosh, so much. And then, of course, you know, you see, I think the the scene between Holmes and Irene where he kind of confronts her. Um, yeah. And just, you know, there, it, it's very... It's very violent. It's very disturbing. And, you know, the part of me was like, oh, my gosh, I really hope they're going to twist this in some kind of way because I am not liking the way that he's kind of manhandling her and yelling at oh, her. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, that's um, right. Like later on after like it's it's very interesting, right? Because uh, like the, the lead up to that, because, you know, you have um, Irene in their house and Irene apparently having post-traumatic flashbacks and whatnot. And then she's uh, apparently their house has been invaded by the people who were keeping her captive and making her so uncomfortable. And that's why they go to the safe house. And so you really feel for how unsettled and afraid she must be. Yeah. And then, you know, you have Sherlock just reacting with such anger and, and violence. And of course, it takes on a very different meaning after the reveal. But it's just kind of... Yeah, I totally agree. That made me so uncomfortable to watch at first. It's it's very violent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, and, yeah, I was like, okay, elementary, you better, you know, I'm trusting you. <laughs> this better turn out different because, yeah. Yeah, and the sexual undertones were really, really not making that in any way 
better yeah. <laughs> for that confrontation. Mm-hmm. You know what was interesting, though, like up to that point is the fact that throughout all of this, because I think up to the, the point of the safe house, you see Irene and in the brownstone and everything else. There's so little interaction with Watson. I think the only interaction we see on screen with Watson before then is when they are at the police station. Mm-hmm. And one of the suspects is being interviewed. They're, they're trying to track down who was keeping Irene in that house. Yeah. And she can't identify the suspect. And Joan says something like very kind, you know, gentle the way Joan does. You know, you were very brave or whatever, regardless. And it's really interesting because Irene just kind of looks at her and there's nothing. She doesn't give anything away, but... It's interesting if you go back and watch that after, Tasha, because it's like there's something assessing in that gaze. And yeah, isn't it fascinating? Because you'd kind of expect because everyone else to that point that Irene has interacted with, again, after being like psychologically abused and held captive by men. Yeah. You would think that she would, to some extent, relate to a woman, you know? Yeah. Especially one who is like Joan trained and whatnot and who's just being very deliberately non-threatening and gentle and instead you only see Irene interacting with male cops male doctors Sherlock himself and not reaching out to Joan in any way and of course she doesn't know Joan right but she also doesn't know the doctors or the cops I don't know that's just really interesting in in retrospect yeah and then of course you know you find out you know later with the reveal you know the way that she talks about how she she's very acutely aware of gender dynamic mm-hmm. she talks about yeah. oh i use uh, one of my lieutenants often talks to clients especially if i know that they're going to struggle with my gender yeah and she's the whole you know as if men had a monopoly on murder all of that you know she's somebody that's very much aware of gender politics and how to deploy her particular brand of femininity and gender i think in in that game Absolutely. Oh, my God. She's just very, very aware. Yeah. Um, Because as she says, like, she sees everything as a game. So every assumption you make, every sort of stereotype you hold, she just sees that as a tool, a strategy, um, one other way to relate to you you, and to use you. Yep. And also, I just, the thing is, gaslighting has been something that the show has talked about before and Irene particularly I gaslights Sherlock in a way that he doesn't even recognize this person because remember when right after the house is invaded by Mr. Yeah. Stapleton or whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. um oh like I, do you mind giving like a little description of gaslighting for people that might not know looking exactly- absolutely it's based on a play I think that was made in the 1930s I and the the premise is that a husband is just abusing his wife basically by doing things to make her discredit her own perceptions of reality and the thing is he's deliberately manipulating her you know like she's seeing you know anyway i'm not am i explaining that well yeah yeah go ahead and so gaslighting is this idea that an abuser will do something and when the victim perceives what's happening and objects to it or you know in any way reacts to it they say oh you're not seeing it blah 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 it's not actually happening and what i love is in because Sherlock, again, upwriting from like, oh my God, this is all my fault. Man pain is like, this is, you know, all of this is happening because of me. So we should split up. That's the only way to keep you safe. Yeah. And she counter proposes that he leaves with her. Yeah. Like he, she's cutting him off from all of his support that he's built up in New York. Yeah. Um, and then when he figures out that something is, is messed up, remember how she says, you get like this, you get like this, you look at things so closely and you start seeing things that aren't there. Uh-huh. Oh my God, it's so creepy. It's so terrible. It it's is. just classic gaslighting. And then when he's still, he's he's wavering and he's shaken. And then, you know, she again manipulates him when she's saying that you lied before, you don't really want to come with me. Now you're just inventing reasons not to. Then she compares him to Stapleton and then she walks out. Yep. And it's just all so manipulative and brutal. And of course, like, he goes back to the house. He's really shaken up. And that's when Stapleton tries to kill him. And oh my god, that's such an ugly fight. (laughs) That was so ugly. I was cringing the whole time. You know, I just have a really low threshold for seeing, you know, violence and pain on screen. And when he stood, like, slammed Sherlock's shoulder, kept slamming it into the wall, I was like, ouch, 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 ouch. 
much. <laughs> yeah. Just how did you not pass out from the pain? <laughs> right. And also, I think there's that sort of, especially a character like Sherlock who trades on his invincibility and, and whatnot so much of the time, you see that when he's really surprised just how brutal and nasty that fight was, you know? Yeah. Um, and how he came very close to dying. And of course, the only reason he didn't is because Irene was naturally following him and did not intend to reveal herself that way. But oh my God, of course, then there's the reveal that she's Moriarty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that scene was amazing. And oh my gosh, she totally owned it. Body language, expression, dialogue, you know, Sherlock being on the floor, her being on her feet with the gun. It was just a very well-staged scene. Yeah. And, of course, the way she introduced herself, bet you wish you'd run away with me when you had a chance or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just very chilling. And I, and it's interesting also that even though he had just, in the safe house, accused her, her of working with Moriarty when she reveals herself, he says that she's a ruse. He just doesn't want to believe that it's yeah. really what it is. Also, isn't it fascinating that, again, remember how at the beginning, like, this, it's such an ongoing theme the way he said before that Moriarty is smarter than him because when he's struggling to figure out what the hell happened to Irene and now she says, I'm saying I'm better. Like the reason she let him live is because she's just better. She wasn't a threat. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, <laughs> if that doesn't turn so much on its head, Tasha, oh my God. I know that that was just the way she was very coolly like, you, you know, I'm better. And also, like, you're a game, I'll win every time. It was just so chilling. And actually very, very in keeping with how Moriarty is described in the books. You know, he's, Sherlock Holmes calls him, you know, one of the greatest brains in England. And, you know, as this very cool, calculating intellect. Um, and she just embodied it so well in that scene. Incidentally, I think an interesting trivia kind of thing that I noticed was, I'm pretty sure Stapleton in the books was an abusive husband in The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes, yes, he was. (laughs) Yes, wasn't he the guy, yes, with the butterfly net, whom it turned out was basically controlling his wife in a very, um, yeah, he was basically an emotional and physical abuser for his wife. So I just thought it was interesting that they used that name. Yeah, yeah, that was very interesting. Because I was like, oh my god, Mr. Stapleton from The Hound of the Baskervilles, really? (laughs) Anyway, that was interesting. Also, something that I kind of think is very, uh, like a, little bit of a tangent here when Moriarty is talking to Sherlock in that scene and she says you proceeded to prove you were inferior by disappearing into a syringe and I think that's very interesting how many people including Sherlock have conflated addiction and and that entire struggle with weakness and inferiority yes and I love that that is not what the narrative itself supports in any way and certainly not Joan yes I mean, like, not in any way romanticizing or lessening the the depth of the struggle, but it is not something that makes you inferior. And I think that is another thing that I love about the show, yep. just the way it handles the addiction narrative. But yeah, it's fascinating that, the, that Moriarty frames it as an inferiority, this weakness of his. Mm-hmm. But yeah, everything about that scene is just fantastic. And how she says that, she doesn't want to kill him. She wants to hurt him. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that's horrifying. <laughs> and I think very in keeping with Moriarty though, like, because again, everything is a game to her and he is such a fun plaything. Why would she kill him? Mm-hmm. It's just, it makes her so alarming. Although I do love that this episode does hit come some comedic notes, like right after that scene when they're explaining to Gregson what just happened. Yes. <laughs> And he's summing it up in that tone of controlled disbelief. (laughs) (laughs) Like, are you kidding me? (laughs) Gregson is so long-suffering. He's just like, oh, great. It's these two again. (laughs) Uh, Oh, my God. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, um, the scene with Marcus and Sherlock in the car, which... uh, (laughs) Oh, USD up the waz. <laughs> I don't know what they were going for with that scene. but I don't either, but it was funny. <laughs> it was hot. I mean, Marcus was all like... Yes, it was that too. <laughs> ...and being like, hey, how you doing? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, the thing is, they were such dudes. Just so... 
it was just really funny. Like, that's rough, buddy. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I love the jokes that people are, of course, already making on Tumblr. Like, I think the reference to Avatar The Last Airbender, when Sokka is talking about his first romantic tragedy or whatever, and Zuko's amazing, emotionally inept reaction is, that's rough, buddy. And that's literally exactly the same note that Marcus hits during that conversation and it's just so hilarious um yes but anyway i i loved that and of course i loved later on but also i really think that bella is terribly underused and i feel like we have not seen enough of their emotional progression as friends yes sherlock let joan in much sooner but again with another man he's been there's just a lot of interesting things with masculinity going on there that he's been a little bit more reluctant to let Bell in. And it's really interesting how he is explicitly much more comfortable in this scene with Marcus, with being very... He's not defensive or prickly when he has to be vulnerable and talking about emotional yes. topics. So that's interesting. Um, of course, I think that the shippiest thing for those two was towards the end of the episode and the brownstone when Sherlock is apparently suffering an overdose. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, gosh. I was just, like, clutching my heart, like, no! <laughs> yes! And we talked before, I think, about how in this show that we think that Reichenbach Falls will be lapse in sobriety mm-hmm. and how brutal that would be. And I was like, wait, wait, you're not doing that right now. There's just no way you're doing that right now. I'm not uh, ready. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was not ready at all. Although, again, I guess going back to Belle and Holmes and when they're staking out the shipyard. Oh my god, again with the comedic notes, when they find the lemurs? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're not expecting that. You're like, wait, what? What? <laughs> lemurs. <laughs> so there's that. And, of course, the the shipping magnet. How do you say that word? Magnate? <laughs> um, shipping... Um, oh yeah, you know I can't even say it right now, and I know exactly what that word is, but I, it's not. Yeah, yeah, like just call him the novel. That, <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, the thing is, I just love that scene when they're interrogating him, and Sherlock goes, "Narwhal, stop lying to us." <laughs> and he's like, "Could you not refer to my client by that name?" <laughs> yes, <laughs> and it's just so testy. But yeah, again, I think that that was actually very well handled because again. This episode goes through so much. I mean, first you have Irene, then you have the entire breakdown of the ruse of Irene, and then you f- the reveal is Moriarty, and then what was her plan this entire time yep. that's been led up to in these previous episodes. And there's just so much going on, and I think that they had the comedic notes very, very well, because they were needed. <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, and of course, right after they have that interrogation, that's when... Watson gets the call mm-hmm. that her mother has slipped and fallen. Yeah. And so she's like, oh, God, sorry, bugging out. And that's when we find out that, hey, it was actually Moriarty. And oh, my God, that confrontation yeah. between the two of them. Do you want to start talking about that? That was that was intense. <laughs> that, that was intense. And I, you know, it, it's really interesting because it was its own power play. Yes. That I don't, you know, I think Moriarty was convinced that, you know, she was winning the power play, whereas Joan was always, Joan was never about winning the power play. She was always about helping Sherlock. And I think that gives her, you know, she's always about empathy and doing what's right. So I think that gave her a different perspective and definitely gave her the upper hand because I feel like she knew what Moriarty was trying to do and she was just not going to play by those rules. And Moriarty didn't understand that Joan was refusing to play by the rules. Yeah. And the thing is, I think that, again, because Moriarty and Sherlock, the reason why they're so terrible is the fact that they both play those games and they see puzzles and all that stuff. And Joan is not there for that. Joan is there to survive. Mm -hmm. That's what I think Moriarty missed. Because, you know, Joan doesn't rise to any of her bait. And there's a lot of interesting and really creepy, terrible stuff going on there. Yes. Because that moment when, you know, Moriarty asks Joan, do you want to sleep with him? And just, there's just a lot of crappy stuff and of course you know we've seen watson handle that kind of crap throughout the show right but this is just a little more pointed and a little more vicious and she doesn't rise to any of the bait like she's just sort of she's reading moyarty this entire thing yeah um which is really interesting like 
how that's being handled. And and I think Moretti is impressed, you know, yep. with Joan's entire demeanor. But she doesn't quite realize just exactly how much is going on. Mm-hmm. Although I do love the way she calls her my dear Watson at the end. Yes, I did appreciate that as well. That that little thing. But oh God, that entirely awful bit though, when she calls her the mascot. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh my goodness, that that's and the way even though. This is Moriarty, who is a villain, who is a murderer, who is so terrible. The way Joan still kind of pauses and raises her eyebrows at that. Yeah, absolutely. And can I just say, you know, and I don't know how much of this the writers are doing intentionally, but I feel like Elementary does this really cool tongue-in-cheek response to how their show has been received. So, you know, so, some of you that have been following the show, you know, before it even aired knows that there was a lot of flack thrown at the show when it was first announced. You know, people did the whole, oh my God, Watson's a woman. Oh my God, mm-hmm. Watson's an Asian woman. You know, there was all this stuff. And oh my God, it's an American adaptation of Sherlock Holmes. Therefore, it's going to suck. You know, there was all the shade thrown at the show. That's still thrown at the show in certain quarters of the fandom. Yeah, <laughs> like that interaction between Moriarty and and Joan really poked fun at some of those things, and you have Moriarty referring to Joan as a mascot, which in that context is something that is loaded with a lot of racial baggage. You know, you have yes. um, yeah, and then she you have her accusing Joan of you know just wanting to sleep with Sherlock, which is also something that has been leveled against the show. You know, people have talked about how they're not going to be able to portray this relationship in any way except in a sexual and romantic way. Yeah. Of course, that final comment, oh, you can have this whole insipid country, you know, that whole anglo yes. back dismissal. And it was just, and I don't, again, I don't know how much of it is intentional, but I felt like it was such a tongue-in-cheek poking at all these naysayers about that, you know, basically decried this adaptation before it even aired. And I was just kind of fist-bumping the whole time because... <laughs> yeah. This is- well, the thing is, I actually felt that was actually quite deliberate because... For example, Robert Doherty has gotten increasingly irritated, I think, with um, at least the obsession over the fact that, oh my God, oh my God, Watson's a girl. Right. Because I think around mid-season, there was an interview in which it's like, you know, I think it's time to move past that. I think because mid-season, you know, they'd very much done a really good job establishing just how the dynamics were working out and that it was, you know, in fact, working very well. Yeah. And people were still sort of going, what? She's a girl? Yep. And so I, I think that at least based on some of the comments that Robert Doherty has made, that it was very, very much deliberate mm-hmm. because it's not just a couple of pressed fans. It, it's a lot of people in the mainstream mm-hmm. going, oh, my God, are you sure that you can make um, this iconic character uh, an Asian woman? Yep. And anyway, the subtext, the extra textual implications were great, but I just really loved the way those two interact again especially because we have not seen irene slash moriarty interact with joan at all prior to this yep and so it's just sort of like this is really the first time we just see the two of them really looking at each other and and talking and it's just really really interesting and i do think that moriarty walks away with a certain respect for joan because she just handles herself beautifully of course yes and you have to have a great deal of respect for joan watson because of all the things you do not sign up for, Tasha, when you decide to be a sober companion, you do not sign up for this. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. like when they're back in the station house and Sherlock is clearly freaked out and they're both bickering about what Watson could possibly have done when she was approached by Moriarty and Henchman. Yeah, that's great. That's cute. Yeah, I'm like, oh my gosh, you guys are such a queer platonic married couple. <laughs> <laughs> you really are. And of course, Gregson has to break up the little the fight that they have going on. It's just, it's great. Um, yeah, and then, of course, you have that ama- you know, incredibly emotional confrontation between Joan and Sherlock after the whole, you know, after everything goes down with the family being killed and them figuring out, you know, the plan. Yes, everything. yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, my God. That was, oh, by the way, um, just everything about that was horrifying. The way that fellow ends up having to kill the Macedonian couple. Yeah and how he is murdered after and of course it's you know his daughter is safe but it's just all of that was really horrifying to watch and oh by the way i i did think that for a plan of moriarty's that it was really well done in the sense that it was low-key in the sense that for example like bbc sherlock where all of london would know about bombs going off and stuff yeah 
But here you have something that I think very much shows exactly what kind of person Moriarty is, because there's no reason for someone of her brilliance to have something so convoluted in order to make bank. She does that because she loves the game. It's so complicated and vicious and has so much collateral damage because she likes it. She likes the game. Yes. And of course, all of this seems so completely disconnected unless you know better. It's just, it's really fantastic the way it's both a very well-written mystery and also a mystery that very much fits the character profile. Absolutely. Especially when you remember that Moriarty in canon was um, a physics professor. Yes. Um, and yeah, and, and Sherlock Holmes talks about how he's written these amazing books on astrophysics that are so brilliant that there's no there's no man in the scientific press capable of criticizing the books. And he's basically a very respected professor who could obviously make a decent living as a professor and yet he is base becomes this criminal mastermind because you know he loves the game he loves um using his brains in that way so it's very much in keeping with canon yes and of course that confrontation again with joan that that very brutal confrontation is very very difficult because remember when he's screaming at her, he's screaming at her that he almost relapsed earlier in that day. Yes. And he didn't because it would disappoint her. And that is such an unbelievably terrifying thing to say to another person. And she doesn't flinch from it. She doesn't flinch at all. And it's not because she's a sober companion anymore. Or, or at least that's not the primary reason why. She's his friend. I think it's amazing, Tasha, ever since they've become partners in like episode 16 or whatever, we see them figuring out what exactly are the boundaries of this partnership. What does that mean? Yep. What are we to each other? And I think that we've seen Holmes freaking out because he understands what it means to him mm-hmm. that he is so deeply moved and changed by by who she is and what she is to him. But he doesn't understand what he is to her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously he does throw out some douchey things when he compares her to Miss Hudson. You were lost before you met me. He doesn't believe that, but he, you know, he's Sherlock. And he does say things like that when he's too scared to look at the truth. You see now how deeply she is invested in being his partner mm-hmm. and what that means to her. That so much of the chafing that she's done is to sort of like make sure that she needs to know that she's not kidding herself, that she is in fact his equal yep anyway so i think that so that sort of like culmination of what they've been building this relationship to be over the course of the season was great mm-hmm. and again and of course the final the big thematic moment in that confrontation is when she tells him that the only way to survive this is to let her win mm-hmm. that if he goes on trying to win in the classic heroic protagonist way it's going to break him mm-hmm. and the thing that matters is surviving you know not the intellectual victory not anything else let her win mm-hmm. that is what you need and and i love the fact that that's where the episode goes with it mm-hmm. absolutely um, he has to disengage from these power plays in yes order, in order to be safe and healthy and happy which i think is a very different narrative than what you usually get in these types of stories i mean again if you compare it to bbc sherlock and what they did with um, a scandal in Belgravia and what they've done throughout with Moriarty Sherlock, it's very much a power play and they're both engaged in it. And they neither of them have any intention of, of, um, of withdrawing from it. Um, nor does anybody really tell Sherlock, hey, you need to step back and stop getting pulled into this. Um, yeah. Because so often in, in these kinds of situations where you have this dynamic male character the narrative is about power and it's about one kind of male power conquering another kind of male power. And I thought it was really interesting that they, in elementary, Sherlock basically had to disengage and step back in order to save himself. Absolutely. And that that's a, an entirely, it's a victory, but it's a victory on a completely different axis. Absolutely. And, and I really do love the fact that the only way to win is to not play, basically. And like you said, it's not about one kind of power conquering another. And that if you try to play that, you will lose, in fact, mm-hmm. was the entire point of it. So, yeah, that was all really, I think, well handled. And I think that the fact that Joan 
is the one who who solves Moriarty is amazing on so many levels. Do you want to talk about that? Oh my gosh, do you have like two hours? <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually, when one of the first things that um, I said about this, uh, it was on our blog, the Baker Street Irregulars, somebody asked me about it, particularly about, you know, the kind of racial implications of, of Moriarty calling Joan a mascot. Um, and it made me think of something that Gloria Anzaldúa often talks about. You know, she says that um, people that are marginalized in society, people that are ostracized and, and oppressed, so women of color, have a different perspective and a different kind of insight that the people who have privilege don't have. And it gives you a whole new way of looking at the world and a whole different way of engaging with the world and just a whole different, a different ethical framework. And I think the scene with... The whole interaction basically with Joan and Moriarty and, and the, that triangular complication with Sherlock, it, it's very, I think it's a very good example of that, what, what Gloria Anzaldu was talking about, because Joan is not in, involved in these power plays, nor does she want to be. You know, I think as a woman of color, she's always, she's always been aware of being marginalized by power, and that kind of makes her wary about the way power plays work out. And so, you know, she was never interested in kind of besting, uh, besting anybody the way that Sherlock and Moriarty are. And so because she's removed from that, she has this whole different perspective and an, an enlightening perspective, something that neither Sherlock nor Moriarty have. And, you know, that's really what helps her see through Moriarty and the, what gives her the key to kind of undoing her or trapping her um, is this other perspective that she has um, and I thought it was so brilliant and again I don't know if the writers have read Gloria Anzaldúa but I want to be like read Gloria Anzaldúa because this is what you were doing <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah so anyway, that was there's just so many layers you can peel back from that but I just felt like it was just a great I mean how often in a tv show do we get to see a woman of color whose insight and perspective is is valued and right on point and kind of shown as being, you know, a key to something. Yes, absolutely. And love the way you've interpreted that, because I had a little bit of a more cynical take on that. The fact that, unlike Sherlock and Moriarty having this entire intense intellectual showdown between the two of them, Joan is not interested in that, because Joan is simply interested in surviving. That is the reason why Joan wins, because Joan is not trying to talk about her, her pride or um, besting anybody. For Joan, it is can you live through this? Can you come out of this in any way whole? That is what she's looking at. So she is approaching it on an entirely different scale and perspective. And that is why Sherlock maintains a sobriety that he lives at all, frankly, yep. through this episode is because Joan is the one who infects him with that particular perspective. And it's also, oh God, anyway, I just love this a lot. And also, I think there's another thing that we were talking about before is something that I love that this episode echoes and that this entire season, that this entire show has really built up is Joan as an everyman. And something that I think that the Sherlock Holmes adaptations struggle with is the idea that Sherlock Holmes is this epitome, this genius. Mm -hmm. And elementary both allows Sherlock to be this unique genius and still deconstructs the whole unique male genius myth because you know it allows Joan to access the myth as an everyman character mm -hmm. I mean like she is genuinely brilliant as a surgeon and detective but like it's normal human levels of being bright like she's not this idiosyncratic like eccentric genius like Sherlock is you know yeah and Sherlock explicitly believes that she can be taught to do his work Yep. And the show demonstrate that she can. Good detective work is a skill that is completely accessible to her, you know? Absolutely. And there's even that scene in the Stapleton's house or whatever, like the house that Irene's being held in, when she makes that connection about the fancy paint or whatever. Uh -huh. um, and then Belle and Gregson are just kind of smiling at her, and they smile at each other, and Belle says something to the effect of, you know, just like Kevin Holmes here, isn't it? Uh -huh. Um something like that and it's just a fantastic thing because of course we have seen like Joan kind of doubting herself um and whatnot and sort of discounting herself because she isn't Sherlock she isn't like wacky male genius mm -hmm. 
but that doesn't mean that she does not still get to access that doesn't mean she cannot like one be an investigator and also i think like on a thematic level that even though she isn't sherlock holmes she can still access the sherlock holmes canon as watson as a woman as an asian woman if that makes sense yeah absolutely and again going back to how elementary continues to like just reinterpret canon in really interesting ways you know, there is several instances in canon where Watson talks about trying to apply Holmes's methods, trying to learn from Holmes, and there are instances, there are several instances of Holmes being instructive towards Watson, you know, talking to him about the process of detection and how to do this and how to do that, and he kind of talks about how when he retires, you know, he, or when he's, he's working on his magnum opus, you know, the whole art of detection. So Sherlock yeah. Holmes always believed that detection was something that was empirical and that it was a method that could be emulated and studied by other people, you know, his own brilliance in observation notwithstanding. And so again, it's very much in keeping with canon that Holmes is not only teaching Joan, but that Joan is kind of taking it on herself and learning and growing. You know, it's kind of basically what canon Sherlock Holmes always wanted was to tutor others in the art of detection and kind of you know, make the whole process of detection more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that I really love about Watson is that she is never the exceptionalized woman. She's never exceptionalized, but she's still special and important, Um, which I think is really important because I, I think that we do have a lot of a certain kind of strong female character trope where the character as a woman is allowed to access stereotypically male domains of, of genius or strength or power or whatever because she's just not like the other girls mm-hmm. and that's never the issue with watson like she's never the exceptionalized woman Um, And in fact, the only person who is ever exceptionalized in her femininity is Irene, who was a construct the entire time. Yes. Oh, the self-awareness of that whole storyline just, it just, oh, it just warms my heart. And, you know, one of the things that I think is so refreshing, one of the many things that's so refreshing about the show, I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking to some of my friends about some of their frustrations with the latest series of Game of Thrones. One of the great things about Elementary is that it's, the male gaze is really just not present, if you think about it. Oh my god, yes, I agree. (laughs) Yes, the way, I mean, you never see those, you know, close, like, that slow panning shots of Joan or Irene even. You know, it's very, there's a lot of times when I watch shows and you can just feel the presence of the male gaze and you can feel this discomfort as a woman because of how the camera is framing and, and, kind of panning their bodies and that's just not present in the show you know there's even moments when joan is in bed where she's changing there is no unnecessary sexualizing of her body you know they're, they're absolutely allowed, yeah, yeah they're, sorry they're allowed to be just women and it's just so refreshing yeah and the thing is i mean the show does have beautiful gorgeous shots of lucy Liu, <laughs> and the thing is it's it's at moments of like reflection and and you know these really thoughtful lovely moments and oh my god she has such gorgeous and subtle facial expressions that's fantastic but yeah it is all thoughtfully and very organically handled it's never this salacious deliberate moment because again you have you do have these moments which i do think are creepy actually if you think about it when a female character is literally just doing something like totally ordinary in her day but because at that moment it, it's i don't know she's in her bedroom or she's less clothed camera then sexualizes her mm-hmm. and the thing is in this show when joan is doing something ordinary and re- lying in bed and you know Sherlock, like a total jerk, has burst into her room and been like, "Let's go solve crimes," you know. And she, uh, like, I think, yeah. And she's someone been ex- sorry lingerie. Sorry, this is like something that bugs me all the time about women in TV shows. Is like, I'm sorry, I I don't know any women that sleep in like expensive lingerie all the time, <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh my god! The fact that Joan can sleep in just a t-shirt and shorts, I'm like, yes, thank you. Oh my god, I love Joan wandering around like in like a robe in her boxers or whatever. It's fantastic, you know? It's just really charming. And I also kind of love the way that she's just, just sort of gotten used to the fact that Sherlock, with this complete lack of impulse control, will be like, Watson, 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 <laughs> let me talk to you about crime. Let's go solve crime. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I think there's some uh, like 
snarky Tumblr post going around about how the entire show can be framed as a woman who's just trying to get a good night's rest while constantly being interrupted by this weird guy who wants to solve crimes. Yes. <laughs> Seriously, it's not just when he barges into her room. All these times when she, she falls asleep on some case files because they've been up all night. And then he's like, Watson, Watson, Watson. <laughs> Wake up. I know, and she's like, what is my life? I just want to sleep. I know, so I just find that, like, random and charming, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and, like, I think going back to, like, the male gaze, you know, one of the reasons why I was, you know, I felt like the whole scene where they first saw Irene, it was really jarring for me because the way that she was framed, it wasn't overtly sexual, but it was very male gazy in the sense that this is how Sherlock sees her. You know, yes. she's, she's dressed in white, she's surrounded by white light, and she's painting, and she's barefoot, and her hair is loose, which I don't know anybody that paints with their hair down, especially if you have long hair, because that just looks messy and inconvenient. But, you know, it's, again, part of this fantasy, and it's mm -hmm. very self-aware. And, you know, like I was telling you, I was watching Scandal in Bohemia last night, the Granada Holmes adaptation, and the way they framed Irene is very much similar. You know, the whole white light white clothes, soft lighting, you know, she's beautiful, angelic, all of that. And I just love that elementary, unintentionally or not, paid homage to that and then basically just ripped it down and made, you know, turned it on its head and subverted that trope and completely destroyed the complacency of the male gaze. Absolutely. And the thing is, I'm kind of wondering now if, I mean, obviously there was, uh, you know, people had, I think, very mixed feelings about Natalie Dormer being cast as Irene. And I love Natalie Dormer a great deal. But, you know, I, I think, of course, people wanted to be a woman of color in the role. And now I'm kind of, I'm, I'm more okay with it, I think. Because I do think that they are deliberately playing on the viewer's acceptance of certain tropes of femininity. Mm -hmm. As much as Sherlock's. And honestly, it really helps that she is a slim, conventionally attractive, blonde, white woman, you know? Yep. Obviously, we'd have loved to see a woman of color embodying that kind of idealized femininity in Sherlock's mind. Right. Um, and therefore in the viewer's minds. But honestly, I'm really not convinced that a woman of color as Irene would have translated that way or that would have been swept under the radar for so many people without question. Right. And I think to sort of like really deconstruct the idea of the woman who eclipsed the whole of her sex, um, yeah. she did in fact have to be a white woman. I, I really think that for to deconstruct that particular idealization of delicate damsel in distress, empathetic artist who makes cynical Sherlock Holmes think better of humanity and all of that stuff. Yes. Um, yes. Absolutely. All of that put together, I really do think that, it, you know, the casting was well done. And especially when you find out that, hey, that was a construct the entire time. Really, she's Moriarty, who is incandescent, but also terrifying and abusive and creepy. Yes. Um, yeah. And I that the person who was this eminently practical, strong, gentle, absolute bedrock of power and strength this entire time was Joan. <laughs> But yeah, I just, I just, I do love the way that that was entirely like deconstructed. And then we have in comparison, we have Joan being, again, she's not the exceptionalized, idealized woman. Yep. And she, and she still gets to be important and special. And it's fantastic. Basically, yeah. I love Joan. I love I, affair with Joan Watson here. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Joan Watson show. Joan Pretty Watson. much. <laughs> uh, I know. And just, I'm just still reeling at how brilliantly they deconstructed Irene and Moriarty and basically subverted this idea that there is any one ideal woman because it was all a fantasy and Sherlock's um you know all his man pain about oh I'm the reason that I'm the reason that she's traumatized I'm the one that has to save her I'm the one that I'm the reason that she was kidnapped you know all of that was basically subverted for what it was you know she, again going back to how amazingly astute Irene and Moriarty are whichever you want to call them, um, in terms of knowing exactly how to deploy her gender, how to deploy her femininity, and kind of, you know, exploit all those illusions and, and weaknesses in Sherlock's um, reasoning. Again, can we talk about how, you know, just briefly, how, you know, Sherlock Holmes a lot of times in canon is upheld as the eminent, you know, reasoner in a way that a lot of times endorses his sexism and misogyny, you know, his 
his whole point of view that women are emotional and weird and unpredictable is always upheld as truth because you know Sherlock Absolutely. Holmes yeah Sherlock Holmes is upheld as this reasoning paradigm when you know a lot of those a lot of his beliefs about women are very flawed and again based in sexist ideals so how amazing is it that Irene was able to exploit those weaknesses in his logic and use them to bring him down Absolutely and I do think that this is probably a topic for another time, but the way that Sherlock's misogyny, because he does make sexist, shitty comments to Joan in the show, but I, I really like the way Elementary handles that because a lot of it is narrative, like the narrative does not endorse that, basically. Even when he does it, the narrative does not endorse it, and Joan certainly doesn't let it pass <laughs> yes. um, without slapping it down some. So... I think that's very interesting. And I also think that the, the more that he comes to trust Joan, the less, because he, she doesn't let him get away with shit. So I really do think that there's, you see a, a definite trend of Sherlock not reaching to be sexist towards her as this knee-jerk defense mechanism. Yes. Um, because one, she doesn't like let him get away with it. And also because he's simply better than that. So mm -hmm. I really do love the fact that, no, you can be this slightly abrasive male genius without being a sexist douchebag. The two do not have to go hand in hand. They really don't. Absolutely. And if you are going to be sexist and misogynist, there's no reason for a narrative to uphold that. You know, there's no reason for a narrative to uphold a hero's misogyny and racism or what have you. Precisely. Simply, like, yeah, simply because I love that. Character. I love the fact that, of course, we see Sherlock doing these things. Of course, people do problematic things. But, you know, your heroes aren't perfect. It's one thing to have your hero be imperfect. It's something for the narrative to not acknowledge that what you're seeing is a failing, is, you know, an imperfection. Um, rather than, like, supporting even the flaws as part of, I don't know, in some kind of inevitable genius or something. But, yeah, I, I really love the way that is handled on the show. Yeah, and I know so much feelings. And, you know, one of the things we, and for those of you that listened to our first podcast, you know, one of the things that really frustrated us about the BBC Sherlock's take on Irene was how it ended, you know, how she was brought down because of her emotions. You know, she was so Sherlocked. And I just, oh, I hate oh. her. <laughs> that, you know, she, Sherlock was able to see through her. Basically, the assertion was that he was able to defeat her because he let go of his emotions and used purely his reasoning. Whereas in elementary, it's a complete flip because you have Moriarty and Irene who are so in love with not Sherlock, but with this game, with this power. And Sherlock is engaged in the same way. And the, and the only reason that she beats Sherlock, just like in the book, Irene does best Sherlock Holmes. The only reason that she doesn't quite get away is because Joan is able to see through it and counsel Sherlock to withdraw from this power play. And basically it's Joan's emotional intelligence and empathy that enables her to do that. And I love that that was the takeaway, that this idea that you don't have to be a cold reasoning machine in order to succeed um and that it's really at, at the end of the day it's really about empathy and being conscientious and not engaging in these really destructive power plays i just i just love that theme absolutely and and i do think that especially when you have sherlock's brand of like seeing the puzzle and everything and his genius approaching it from what's supposed to be an objective rational standpoint or whatever and that he that's how he sees the puzzle in people uh yeah. and that the way he figures out people is not by deducing the emotional background but everything else that he sees and then he just kind of deduces what must have been the motivation but mm -hmm. even then he misses a lot of like the emotional context and clues for the behaviors right. what's interesting about moriarty is that again manipulating that trope of femininity she completely just very organically understands and connects with the emotional reasoning and that's why she is so so good at playing people and that is why she is so so good at the strategy that is this multi-layered uh, strategy where she just plays people like violins so Absolutely. and again she you know I, I talked about this in that meta but you know i think she uses emotional intelligence in a very cold precise and calculating way whereas sherlock and joan use reasoning and deduction in a very empathetic way which is i think the absolutely difference between them yes like she applies logic 
or cold logic to emotion and they you know apply emotion to cold logic and in the end that's what helps them best her and i i just love that message there's just so much oh i just love it <laughs> yeah no it's it's just really uh, well handled <laughs> so basically we have a lot of feelings about this episode guys <laughs> in case that wasn't clear this is why we did this special episode because we just wanted to get this all out and, and talk about it while it was still fresh in everyone's mind. And oh my god, you Glacia, what's Sonia? Oh my god, that was that was just oh my god, that was super cute. I, fantastic I just ending note. That on my TV when that happened, I was like, ah! <laughs> oh, it was just so cute. It was. You're so cute. <laughs> and the fact that they ended on the rooftop, you know, again, there's some mirroring that's been done. At the end of the very first episode, they're t- standing on her on the rooftop talking. And, you know, this episode ends with them being on the rooftop, just kind of, you know, in mutual amicability. It's just, oh, it was just such a perfect uh, way to come full circle. Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh, and just before we forget, um, I did think that we both wanted to talk about the title of this episode, which is The Woman King, and we had some very different perspectives on that title. Tasha had some reservations. You want to talk about that? I think, you know, I don't know. My reservations with the term Woman King have been around for a while, mostly because, I don't know, because I love the word queen. And yes. I feel like when we use Woman King, and I'm, I'm not sure that androcentrism is being destabilized there because it's kind of, because king is such a gendered word, and I don't think we can, you know, our language is so entrenched in gender that I don't know that we can ever, it's going to take centuries and lifetimes probably to to divest gender and gendered implications from these words. And so when you have king, which is such a gendered word, and you make it synonymous with power, and you know you add woman to it instead of just making it queen, which is gendered as woman, I don't know, I guess I have, I'm not sure how much it deconstructs androcentrism, but I know that people feel different ways about it. So, and I know you really like the term. Absolutely. And the thing is, I liked it in reference to both Watson and Moriarty in different ways in this. And also, I suppose I, it's actually the title of one of my favorite songs and one of my favorite albums by Iron and Wine. Right. Uh, with the entire album is, I think, a reflection on female power in its various ways. And I suppose I did find it effectively challenging to androcentric view of kingship and power. But by sort of divorcing the term king from the male gender and saying it's a title meaning supremacy. And and also because of the fact that historically in various monarchies, if a queen married, then her husband is the king and he ranks still higher. Right. And here I love the idea about the woman king, especially in the idea that because both Joan and Moriarty are women in this adaptation. So, and, and that they are, that they have completely owned these roles. Yes. Um, she's not a queen. She is the king. She's in your house, dudes. She's in your house and she owns it. Uh-huh. And uh, I kind of loved that play on it. Anyway, I suppose I've always loved the idea of, of king as a title that's not male restricted ever since reading the Enchanted Forest Chronicles, uh, which are these these, uh, children's fantasy novels when I was a kid. And you have this um, amazing lady dragon who ends up being the king of dragons. And her friend is like, oh, don't you mean queen? And she's like, no, that's an entirely different job. I mean, king of dragons. I am the king. (laughs) And uh, anyway, so ever since then, I've just liked that whole thing. So yeah, the woman king. (laughs) That was my feelings about the, the title. Yeah, and I and now that you explain it that way, you know, I definitely see that how it works for Moriarty because I think she again she's someone that is very acutely aware of gender politics and deploys them to her advantage. So you know, the whole her having a man speak for her and be her voice when she's always you know she's always the central power behind everything, but she deploys gender in meaningful ways. So I definitely think she is somebody that would probably take that term on for herself because the role that she's embodying, you know, this criminal mastermind, this power player that plays with small nations just to make some money, you know, that is basically a very masculinized space. 
you know, in terms of how we understand it, how we perceive it, and even in fact, you know, in terms of what we expected, you know, we all expected Moriarty to be a man. And instead, you know, you have Natalie Dormer as Moriarty. So, you know, she is in some ways, as a woman, accessing those spaces that are usually very masculinized. So it makes sense. And then you have Joan, who had a bee named after her. And bees, as we know, are largely matriarchal. And it's the queen bee that... Yes. <laughs> yeah, that has all the power and, and pulls all the strings. So it's it's pretty brilliant in its own way, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh my god, I love deconstructing and overanalyzing media. This is fun. <laughs> I live overthink things. <laughs> yes, it is such delight. And we all make our own fun, I suppose. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's a lot of fun to sort of just look at the layers of meaning and potential that are possible in these readings. Also, how much do I love that? Because I'm I'm a jerk. Okay, I go for the the dirty, bad, wrong ships a lot of the time, and I love the fact that Moriarty Sherlock is in fact canon. <laughs> I know. I bet way back in the day when people were writing Moriarty Sherlock fanfic, they had no idea an adaptation would one day <laughs> it canon. <laughs> it would go there. Um, and I mean, I actually had to not start dying of laughter at work because I was just thinking about this podcast and no, it's actually canon that Moriarty and Sherlock have like, had screamingly good sex and fucked each other's yeah. brains out. Like, that's a thing <laughs> that Sherlock himself probably regrets telling Watson at this point. A sexual marathon, <laughs> yes. I know. And I With Moriarty. <laughs> yes, and I just kind of picture, you know, Granada Holmes and Granada Moriarty, you know, <laughs> Of them being, you know, the, and in because in Granada Holmes, your know, Moriarty is, is significantly older. You know, he looks very much like your, um, you know, grandfather type college professor, albeit a really evil one. So the idea of them being told that <laughs> <laughs> they had a sexual marathon was was quite hilarious. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I think I've already told you how much I hated Andrew Scott's interpretation of Moriarty really really hated it <laughs> there are things i like about bbc sherlock but that interpretation of moriarty was not one of them yeah. uh, anyway so yeah the idea of those two having a sexual marathon absolutely unacceptable no <laughs> so and and that's not even because of cumberbatch that's entirely because i really can't stand andrew scott's interpretation it's just <laughs> not okay i um, think there's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just so overdone and weird. And there's all of this. The presence and menace of it is gone. Whereas Dormer, oh my God, she knocks it out of the park. Yeah. With the elegance and the the intellectualism of Moriarty, I think. Yeah. Um So that, that was just really fantastic. Uh, I, yeah. I think we can say hands down, she's our favorite Moriarty. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I think that uh, it's it's really hard to argue with that one. I mean, come on. Basically. Uh, she's fantastic. So, so yeah. But, and also, I think that you were talking about this before, that it's interesting, especially that since in the canon, that Irene never has feelings for Sherlock Holmes. That's never a thing. Irene Adler is going off to marry and run off with uh, Norton. She's Sherlock is the one who has the fascination for her, mm-hmm. not the other way around. And with so many of the modern adaptations, we, we do see this idea that there's something going on between the two of them. We saw that in the the Ritchie films. We see that in BBC Sherlock and now in Elementary, mm-hmm. like that there's a relationship between Irene and Sherlock. And I think it's interesting, especially with the mixed feelings that I think a lot of people have had about that, that uh, with Elementary you see Irene and Sherlock as a canon relationship, but also not because she was a construct the entire time. Yes. So. <laughs> that. Like, way to pull the rug from under that. It's, yeah. That's would, fantastic. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So much. Oh, so much goodness. And I definitely think, yeah, this is definitely what, you know, after I, I I have a soft spot for the Granada Holmes version of Irene, but definitely my favorite Moriarty is Natalie Dormer's Moriarty, and her Absolutely. Irene is right up there with Gail Honeycutt's take. So, absolutely. 
Anyway, I think that we've probably squawked quite enough. <laughs> so, um, Short up an hour. we should probably... So we've done pretty oh my god, how did that even happen? <laughs> oh my gosh, so thanks again, of course, for listening to us and for, like, putting up with our really irregular schedule. You know, we're both just... I'm just a very disorganized person in general, so... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm really not much better, and also there's just been a lot going on with work and whatnot. And uh, as much as I love you guys, and I love this, and I love you, Tasha, I'm not actually being paid to do this. <laughs> so there's that. I know, uh, but but anyway, um, this is so much fun, and you guys are so much fun. Like having these discussions with you, and everything else, like in our little um, Tumblr community, has been so delightful. So thank you again for just making this so much fun for both of us. We really, really love the questions, the commentary, the various additions that you've made. We just love you guys. We love this. So thanks. Yeah. So definitely hit us up if you have any questions or comments or critiques. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to continue the discussion um off the podcast as well um our next episode where we will be this um focusing on issues of mental illness and neuroatypicality in sherlock holmes adaptations and we're actually going to have a guest on our show um some of you may know her she does the amazing vlog don't make me whip out my books she's also on tumblr and she's quite active in the elementary uh, fandom uh, language escape is um, what she goes by on Tumblr. And she has agreed to be on the show uh, or the podcast for next time. So we're pretty excited because she does some amazing work with analyzing Sherlock Holmes as well. So it's going to be fun. There's going to be three of us and we're going to talk about a lot of different issues with mental illness and ability in the Sherlock Holmes canon. So watch out for that. And is there anything else we need to add? Or I think that's it. No, I think I think that was it. So yeah, I'm so excited about next time. So yeah, it's going to be fantastic. And again, please continue giving us feedback or letting us know if there's anything that you feel that we can add or illuminate or that we just haven't particularly addressed um, in as much depth as we should have, for example. So anyway, again, thank you so much for everything, you guys. We love you. And uh, until next time, I guess we're done. Yeah, and this is the Baker Street Irregulars, and we'll see you next time. Have a good day. You too. Bye.